When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. about sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for episode 19 is the writer-performer Will Hartley. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's a real hardship to have to <laughs> record something. What, from, from home? Yeah, yeah, to move yeah. from one room to another. Nice to talk to, to a human, though. <laughs> how was is, how is this last, well, I mean, year, generally, just lockdown, how has that been for you? It's been generally all right. I think I've had, like, various ups and downs, like I'm sure most people have, but um, I'd kind of earmarked the first few months of what happened to be lockdown to just do my own projects. So so when it started, I was kind of like, oh, right, this kind of fits with my lifestyle anyway. Um, and then it carried on, and then I was like, oh, actually, everything that I do is gone. Cool. <laughs> um <laughs> What do they call it in business? I was like, I was considering an agile pivot. Um, yeah, I've never heard that. Uh, that Have you not? Before. Yeah, you've just got to be really agile, Alex, and just pivot. Um, yeah. Um, so I, my pivot was to just sit, sit around. Did you uh, hop on any? hobby bandwagon or even podcasting i did do a little podcast actually me and ed eels white uh my oh, yes. long-term uh, sketch comedy partner we used mm. to have um a couple of commentators um who used to we were on our radio show and um we did a little podcast where they would ring each other up because they were very lonely missing football not really having <laughs> anything to do and they would just chew the fat for a bit it was very nice actually like passed a lot of hours just sitting outside or whatever just chatting <laughs> absolute bollocks um, oh, that's great was it uh, improvised yeah yeah oh amazing yeah it's kind of uh, it's called john and tony and tony and john i think or <laughs> or some combination of those words i should really yeah. know what it's called it's, all, it's, it's out on wherever you get your podcasts i think i, I was gonna know, say the, the marketing's going well yeah yeah it's always been my strength actually it's what i'm really interested in <laughs> How long did you do that for then? We did about 10 episodes, I think. Maybe 10, 12 episodes. Wow. Yeah, it was good fun. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to be doing something kind of creative. Yeah, because how have you found being creative in a time like this? I mean, I guess the improv is... Uh, that must be um, that nice sort of escapism of just doing something really silly and just the sort of free free flow of it yeah it's really nice also just to do something with somebody that i trust implicitly with characters that we know like the back of our hands <laughs> so it was kind of just a really funny uh to do that and also kind of missing all the human contact it was just nice to 
remember kind of being in a room and making stupid rubbish up that might make somebody in the world laugh at some point. Mm. Um, you know, because all of that kind of went out the wayside. Sure. Uh, went out the wayside? That's not a phrase. Went by the wayside. Sure, it went, went out the wayside. It went out Why the wayside. Not? Yeah, of course it really did. <laughs> Agile um, pivot out the wayside. I mean, yeah. you're throwing out all these like... <laughs> that's it. Red sky pondering. Um, oh, fuck yeah. off. That's not a thing. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it should be, though. Red sky pondering is when you have to really strictly, strictly stick to whatever the boss wants you to do. I think there's no room for debate. Yeah, but I've kind of been like getting onto lots of writing and stuff, so it's been nice. Um, mm. You know, I feel like I've been relatively productive with no nothing really to show for it. <laughs> well, let's uh, cast your mind back to before coronavirus, before the pandemic, and mm, to, I remember uh, when you first got into comedy and like sketch and character stuff. What was the the comedy you had sort of growing up and where did you kind of first get that spark to be a performer? Oh, good question. I think growing up with lots of like cartoons and telly and uh, like all the old shows like kind of Porridge and Faulty Towers and mm. uh, like the, the big character Victoria Wood and all of those kind of big kind of character things. I remember Jeeves and Worcester being on TV and Hugh and Laurie and... Fry and Laurie. Yes. <laughs> Who did I say? <laughs> Hugh and Laurie. Oh, yeah, Hugh and Laurie. Hugh and Laurie with Hugh Laurie's one man. Did, did you not see that? <laughs> really good, it was. He played the piano and did jazz songs, even back then. Um, he took the house down. Ah. Um, yeah, all that kind of stuff, I think. But I don't think I really ever took it seriously. I also used to kind of read a lot of books and... I just preferred not real life mm. um, because people were kind of nicer and, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And uh, it, But I never really took it seriously. I didn't really do that kind of stuff at school or anything. I, like, I did a couple of plays and that kind of thing. It was only when I got to uni that I was like, actually, maybe I do want to give that a go and see what it is. Were you at uni doing a completely different subject and this was just kind of like a society where you di did that stuff or, or was it part of your degree? This might sound really stupid, but I didn't really know comedy was a thing. Mm. Like I just didn't know it was a d delineated genre in and of itself. Mm. So I kind of, I didn't do theatre at GCSE because I thought it would be too easy because I'm exceptionally arrogant. Um, <laughs> and I did languages instead. And then, and then um, when I went to uni, I did philosophy and Italian because I wanted a year abroad in wow. Italy. Uh, and then I did a kind of couple of plays because, you know, they were, friends of mine wrote something and then they, they took that to Edinburgh. And it was a kind of comedy, comedy play with like loads of multi-character stuff, which is what I enjoy doing, doing stupid voices and being quite high energy and that kind of stuff. Yes. And that's the same time that I started, that was kind of final year of, of, of uh, uni. And then I thought, actually, maybe I'll give this a go and started to apply to drama schools and got into Drama Studio London. And when I did that, I was in Edinburgh with a show in the first term. So I kind of rocked up a bit late for that. Wow. And then after drama school, one of my first jobs was News Review. Oh, yes. Which was really good fun. And then we, we I met Ed Eels-White there, um, who's brilliant. And then we, just, we basically decided we were going to do a show in Edinburgh. But again, we didn't know 
anything to do with like comedy or theatre. We were just like, we want to do a funny show. Mm. And then when we got to Edinburgh, loads of people were doing comedy specifically <laughs> as a thing and there were loads of suddenly like rules for it and you know people expecting certain things out of comedy because that's how comedy is done and that was a real eye-opener which I still I don't really subscribe to that <laughs> it, it is when you first get, go to Edinburgh I mean even as a punter it's like it's quite an onslaught of the senses when you like when I first arrived um, in my first Edinburgh, I got dropped in the Royal Mile, and it was just like, "What? What's happened?" Mm. <laughs> I guess I guess it takes all sorts to make a world, but I don't need to see any um, American universities doing Shakespeare <laughs> or a cappella groups. I never need to hear an a cappella group. Thanks. <laughs> When you and Ed decided to do a show, was that just as the two of you or did you form uh, your sketch group Clever Peter to go up to Edinburgh? Like, how did that sort of uh, build? We did news review together and we got on really well and then we thought maybe we'd try and do a double act thing. And Mm. it was going to be, if I remember, it was going to be something about Wimbledon where we played loads of different characters tennis players yeah whilst having a game of tennis or something i can't even remember exactly what it was what whilst playing tennis in the show potentially we didn't really get that far to be honest because um what's great about me and ed is i think we both have a very similar idea for making stuff and a very similar like end goal of make the people laugh but actually our processes are completely different Mm. so we worked out we can't we find it quite difficult to work on something just the two of us um and then we kind of hit on the idea of actually getting an ensemble type thing together. So we did quite a few, not really auditions, but got bunches of people in a room and started doing some stuff. And there was Hannah George was briefly in a room with us. And Miranda Hennessy eventually was in the first iteration of, of Clever Peter. Yes. With Rich Bond who and Don Stone who Ed had gone to uni with right. and we got like our first gigs were at Brighton Fringe mm-hmm. and we did like we did the first weekend and then we did the last weekend but after the first weekend Miranda got a job doing a movie in Reykjavik so she couldn't do the rest of it oh wow so we um had to re-rehearse the whole show with just me Rich and Ed and it just worked really, really well with us in stupid wigs and <laughs> playing heightened women and like, you know, doing... And it worked. And we got some really nice reviews. And we're like, actually, it works. It works well with the three of us performing and Dom kind of watching and mm. stuff. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was. It was, And, but, and we'd, then we'd, we'd obviously done all the kind of, well, half-hearted marketing, but all the posters and stuff. Mm. And they all had Miranda on them as well in a green jumper because we were yellow blue and red jumpers oh and really miranda there's, was, a, there's yeah. a green jumper yeah miranda ah. was the green jumper and <laughs> so we did buxton fringe and got nominated for a couple of awards and then we did edinburgh and did a really good like first edinburgh show uh, but quite a lot of the reviews were like where's where's the where's the woman in the green uh, jumper who's on all the marketing we didn't oh. even think about it we didn't address oh, it we didn't. <laughs> well almost like it's a ruse to trick people into thinking that there is 
<laughs> that there is a woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Something tells me you couldn't do that now. I suspect not. Um, <laughs> but we honestly didn't really think about it. We were just like, oh, who, who cares? Because again, we were kind of coming at it from a slightly more theatre perspective mm. rather than a comedy perspective. And I think you'd probably get away with a theatre show that is marketed however. Yeah. When we were at our best, we had like high energy, big big concept, big characters kind of thing. Like our idea was to kind of... Because mm. Edinburgh shows are only like an hour, so actually keeping them up energy and not ever having any dead space yes. was always quite important to us. You know, almost pick an audience up as soon as they get in and then drop them at the end, hopefully laughing. Um, although not necessarily always <laughs> the case. What is it? Rat milk. It's going to be a tough sell. So, uh... What does sell? Sex. Okay. What's sexy about rats? Nothing. Mm. Uh, what's sexy? Uh, lipstick. Bikinis. Yes. It's a rat in a bikini. With lipstick on. Uh, what, what else? She's rollerblading down the Miami street. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, what else is cool? Uh, skateboards are cool. Mm, okay, she's rollerblading on a skateboard. How did your writing process work? In terms of, like, you've talked about you and Ed, and you're, like, uh, how was it when you had Richard and Dom, like, did were there any points where the four of you all wrote together or was it very much a bit like a Monty Python thing of two of you write, you know, sub-sketches and then two of you write, uh, you know, the others? Like, how, how was the kind of process with that? We all have very different modes. So sometimes people would bring a written sketch and then it would go through the Clever Peter Mill. Very rarely we'd do it as it was written but sometimes people would come with just an idea and be like, um, I don't know what it is, but it's basically what if, um, you know, you had to, um, you wanted to propose to your girlfriend, but you had to ask your dad's permit, the dad's permission. And he needed you to prove it that his, your loyalty to the family somehow, like what would happen? Like, what is it? And then you kind of like improvise around those kind of things or like a phrase or something and we'd improvise sketches and scenes and things yeah. around that. So I think most of it was was from an idea we'd improvise together. That was when our best stuff would happen. And usually the person who brought the idea would would have an idea of of what the funny in it was or where the funny where they saw it sitting. Because I think that's yeah. the strength of, of us four. We all had slightly different comedy tastes. And so, you know, mm. I would say if I was bringing something, I'd probably want, you know, high energy, big characters with some slight surreal edge to it. Mm. And if Ed was bringing something, he'd probably want something kind of which has a lot of space and time and awkwardness in it. And if Rich was bringing something, he'd want kind of classic gags straight man gags and mm. you know if Dom was bringing something he'd want something quite traditional probably that worked with all the beats oh that's great that's a nice variety yeah and so kind of also like any sketch would would benefit from all those things because you know, one of us would be like I'm kind of bored by this can can we add this in or you know yes we very rarely had any kind of fights because our our thing was well let's put it in front of an audience and when they laugh is when when the funny thing is and if they don't laugh it's not funny easy that's really good that's good that you because it's you know so easy to kind of become precious about your work 
that's a really healthy work ethic of just letting let the audience decide. I also think it's really different. Like writing is very different to what comes out of a human mouth on stage. There's different there's different processes of seeing something be funny. So if you're reading something, that can be quite funny, but actually it won't necessarily translate to being funny from whichever human being is saying it. You know, I'd write what I thought was a funny line that Rich could deliver, and actually it wouldn't be funny when he delivered it because I would need to deliver it in my way. Yeah. But what he would do is he'd change the line and deliver it as he would do in a funny way. And that was even be- that was basically one of our kind of rules. Whoever says the punchline says it however they want, even if, you know, on paper we slightly disagree. How was that when you came to do... Because when you wrote The Dreams Factory, that was more of a, a concept piece, wasn't it? Like there was a narrative... Because your previous shows, did they have a narrative running through or was it more of a traditional sketch show? They all had a narrative of some description because, we uh, again, our kind of idea was that we always wanted this kind of... Um, League of Gentlemen narrative plus kind of Monty Python running gag silliness plus standalone fast show type yes. things. We wanted shows which where we could do all of that stuff. So each of them did have, you know, some kind of narrative. I think Dreams Factory was the one where we went the deepest into it. I think we were all kind of aware that it was our last show together and... Yeah, I think we just wanted to see if we could stretch ourselves to something slightly different. Mm. It was interesting because I think people were quite split on the Dreams Factory. Audiences would either really love it because of its emotional content and other people would hate it because it's not funny enough or, you know, they almost didn't want to think. Oh, really? And also there were some there were some kind of reviews that were just like, well, you're lampooning an advertising agency that's been done loads of times. I was like, yeah, but everything's been done loads of times. It was really funny. And also I liked the sort of poignancy to it because for, for people who haven't seen it, it's essentially an advertising company. Was it? They're trying to make a product, but sort of in doing so, they are like destroying this like this environment aren't they yeah there were kind of lots of lots of stuff underneath it of kind of themes and things and there would be lots of animals in it who are getting kind of screwed over somehow by Mm. human interaction or whatever and just the stupidness of how Mm. you know people will lap anything up if you sell it to them the right way and all this kind of thing which i think i genuinely believe is kind of my personal feeling is that people who create stuff should create it knowing their own creative sensibilities, trusting that an audience don't know what they want to see until they see it. And actually that requires a lot of creative yes. trust in one's own making of something. Whereas what happens quite a lot now is that there are non-creative people, usually exec producers, who are trying to create what people already think they want and they don't know. And actually you yeah. come up with these very generic really boring things that don't really work and that nobody really cares about because they're just the same as something else and it's the wrong way to do a creative process. Totally, and it's also like when something does kind of catch fire and everyone loves it, it's almost like an accident that slipped through the net but they still don't sort of look at it as like, look, you actually, you accidentally let that one slip and didn't like, you know, sort of meddle with it or mess around with it and look what's happened. Um... It's really interesting that kind of thing of 
just letting creatives and trusting them to just sort of get on with it. Uh, that's kind of what I like about something like an Edinburgh Fringe show or yeah. being able to create like live stuff is because it's completely in your control. Mm. There's a time scale to it. You do it, people judge it, it's shit or it's good or it's, it's somewhere in between, whatever. And then you can move on to the next creative thing. Yeah. And there's none of this kind of bizarre... Um, ball polishing and kind of peacocking around of being like who's hot who's hot who do i need to say that i've got in my show mm. you know it's it's like it's this weird like ego yeah. thing in the industry that 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 i completely understand but also with any process of anything there needs to be some trust in other people but often people they, they they don't have it, especially when I don't know their livelihoods are on the line, and you know they're trying to yeah. you know, prove something or whatever. If you had to isolate with any TV comedy character, who would it be? Oh, good question. Maybe the Vicar of Dibley. I think she'd be quite good value because she's quite nice. Oh, Geraldine. Yeah. She's quite nice and she's quite funny. Or Alice as well from Vicar of Dibley. I think she'd be quite yes. good value, although she might get a bit irritating. <laughs> Which one are you more likely to lock down with? I'm just trying to think if there's anybody else that I would, I think I'd really get on with. <laughs> uh, well, I, can't, I can't, they're all, most of them are quite, irri- like my favourites are quite irritating. <laughs> so like John yes. Cleese from Faulty Towers come, springs to mind, but I think that would be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> um, same with Blackadder and Baldrick and oh yes so yeah I think I'll play it safe and go with <laughs> go with Geraldine I reckon from Vicar okay. of Dibley would you lock down um, at the at like the church or like her cottage like where, where would you oh yeah probably not in a church I think that would be bad the cottage looks quite <laughs> cosy all mod cons yeah. you know that would be fine countryside walks I think, yeah. I think that would that would be alright I think there's this slightly safer area where most shows that go anywhere, because there's so many people who know more about it technically, there's a lot of really good shows. There's lots and lots of really good shows. None of them really push the envelope anywhere. They're just good for what they are. And that's kind of great. The, The standard in general is much higher. But it's very difficult to get something that's really amazing or even that's really shit and different <laughs> because there are ways to do stuff now. You know, I'm sure if you, if you Googled how to do a musical comedy, mm. you could find a Save the Cat style beat sheet. Oh, yeah. And, you, you know, if you wanted to do a sketch... Like, if I wanted to do a sketch comedy now, having done it for however many years, I'd be like, OK, well, you probably want 26 sketches. We want, you know, the first one and the middle one and the last one are, are um, narratives, and that's probably about five, six minutes in total. Then you'd probably want three runners... And, you know, a few, few standalone gags. So that's your, like, 55 minutes. Mm. And what goes where. And that's, that is a way to make a show. Yes. But it's really boring. And it's boring to watch. Well, it's just very formulaic, isn't it? And then it becomes... Uh, it's a bit dry, doesn't it? Yeah. And that I find that a little bit where... And that's the difference between the proving ground is you can kind of go and... Like, what are you proving mm. if you can do that? It's the same as working out how to do an essay at school. 
just and then you do it and then you get a good mark for it and you're like oh yeah so I just worked I'd worked out how to do that thing <laughs> and I did the thing and it's a bit like yeah but so so what mm. well, almost why bother um I'm not sure whether anybody else would agree with me necessarily but uh, I'm sure they would it's um yeah it's always like it's that kind of thing of well sort of the equivalent of like learning something to pass an exam rather than actually taking it in and absorbing the knowledge i guess yeah and also it's like i feel like i feel very strongly that creative stuff has to come from what you want to do what you how you want to express whatever you want to express and 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 if that that is then trampled on by having to fit it into some kind of mold it makes it so much more difficult well absolutely i mean um david reed uh, was on this show and uh he said that, um, you know, sketch is very much about play mm. and friends at play. Yeah. And he said, if you go into something with the, this has got to be good or it's not worth doing, then it's already dead. Complete, he's completely right. And he's also right in terms of, I don't think you can make something funny without having fun. Mm. That's why it's easier to do a show that is like drama, comedy drama, and people can choose when they laugh. Because actually, that's people doing a complete cop-out and saying, we don't really know where the funny is, we're not going to trust our own judgement. Mm. It, it happened a bit doing um, Zomboat. I was writing a show. Yes. And I remember us getting stuck in that process in, in the middle few episodes. And we just... I just remember saying to everybody, like, we're not... None of us have laughed in, like, two days. And we're just stuck in, oh, God. in in these like conversations about what could happen, but not like in a, but just in a technical structury way. Yeah. And it, instead of like right, reset. What's funny? Like what what would make us laugh here? Or you know, it was really sapping because you you wouldn't get anywhere. And it we basically I was just like, would it just let's stop for the day and then come back fresh tomorrow. Yeah. With with a different mindset because you get caught in that wheel of like it has to be good or like what should we do here or or oh actually technically this should happen or that doesn't make any sense and you're like well let's just go with something and then you will find later on in the process which bits were good and even if it's wasted work it's not wasted work because we've done something to get somewhere yeah whereas actually you can stop stop with all those conversations of being like hmm it could be this couldn't it yeah yeah but it could be this yeah yeah but it, but it could be this yeah yeah but it could be this and you're like yeah yes you can't actually try anything yeah it could be any of those things guys <laughs> yeah we, we just need to like but none of them are funny yet <laughs> and you're not allowed it's almost like you're not allowed to fail mm. nothing's allowed to be nothing's allowed to be shit like even in the terms of like risk of something being because then you see it like doesn't work well why doesn't it work and then you kind mm. of work uh, kind of backwards on it whereas if it's not absolute gold from the off then it kind of gets cut off at the legs doesn't it yeah i was reading something which i really agree with which is something that creatives struggle with because mm. we only ever see finished product. Yes. Like nobody's ever read the first dra draft of Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. It's not released. Uh, so all we're looking at is is a final product that is as, as best as people can make it. And you can judge that however you want. But actually what it does mean is there's it feels then like there's a pressure on the creative to make that. They haven't seen the process of that going through loads of shit. Yes. And being dreadful at the beginning. All they've seen is the final thing. And they think, oh, I need to make my first effort be as good as that thing. 
that I'm yeah. trying to do. And it's completely not true in any way, shape or form. But there does require some kind of acknowledgement of that and ability to be like, right, I know where I want to get to is that really good thing. Yeah. I know that I need to go through a whole process of not having the good thing first because mm. that's the only way I can get there yeah. as opposed to like, you know, and I think that can be a crippling mindset where some people are like, no, it needs to be perfect the first time because why, why else would I try? It's setting a precedent of like the bar is this high. If you don't reach it, um, then, you know, you've automatically failed. It's like when you combine that again with that sort of like I hate those under thirty lists. Mm. They are so damaging. Yes, <laughs> to people like it's and it's like how many people actually do have like that kind of success, you know, before thirty. Well, also they they don't have the equivalent over seventies list, which there would be, yes. and they also don't define success. There's this there's this great book called The Happiness Advantage. Oh yeah, it's really good. The, but the premise of it is basically it's a psychologist, and he went to Harvard, I think, and he's talking about how um, basically in in our society we have this idea of success, and it's like a kind of upwards graph tra- trajectory, yes. and this idea that when you're successful, you will be happy, and our whole idea is is along this graph. There are lots of like low liars, and we want to bring them up to having like an okay time. But actually, there's loads of people who are outliers up and above who are happy, who are, you know, who who are just having a nice time. And the idea basically being that you need to be happy before you're successful in inverted commas, that it's kind of the wrong way round. And that kind of idea that for me, kind of success or however you want to say that is kind of it's more an infinity symbol than a direct ramp. Because sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nobody has that thought when they see somebody doing a great show. They're like, oh, they've made it. And again, that's such an um, insidious kind of thought pattern that, that I want to be there. And when I'm there, I'll be happy and successful. Because it's not true. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a MacGuffin, isn't it? <laughs> mm, yeah, completely. And to be actually able to like retranslate that to actually now I'm doing what I want to be doing, fine. If you can get into that mindset, it's much easier, in fact. I think also, I think that's why uh, those Clever Peter shows, especially um, the best of one I saw, it just looked like you guys were having so much fun doing that. Yeah. Like you could see, you could so tell like this wasn't a toil uh, you, you know, a sort of hard slog. I mean, it mm. might it might have been at one point, but the fact of the matter is, you didn't. You, there was no sense of you'd all lost your sense of fun. No, exactly, and and that's it. It's that kind of element of joy, mm. joy and energy is where I think personally I feed off both doing and watching. I don't think there's any like even if somebody's doing like the the most dark show or playing the most evil villain. There has to be some kind of love behind the project in order for that joy to come across. And it's so evident when it's not there. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Strap in! It's Clever Peter! How was it when you came to do the Clever Peter radio series? Did you still have the same amount of creative freedom or did you have to sort of adhere to certain, I don't know, briefs, guidelines? Or was it a kind of, were you taking sketches that you'd already done in the live shows um, or was it all brand new material? It was all brand new material. Jeff and David from Positive are brilliant. Um, they're so good and they were really happy just to let us have our creative heads but also we were aware that um, none of us really like radio that much audio is not something that makes us laugh particularly right but it was good because we had a very strict like it was only 15 minutes and we only had four episodes was it yeah 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 yeah. Um, so actually that's only an hour's that's a one hour Edinburgh show basically um, so it wasn't very much content. What tends to happen is if you get any kind of like success in Edinburgh terms, you have lots and lots of meetings with very, very serious people who are, you know, really interested in, in your development and stuff. Um, and, uh, and uh, we hit the amount of kind of TV type chats we had with people and, you know, producers would kind of say, the thing is, you guys are really, really great on um, live. You know, your energy's great and your writing's really great and you guys are really good actors and stuff. The thing, the thing is, though, um, radio's completely different. Um, uh, so some of your, like, visual gags won't work on radio. You're like, yep, yeah, yes. I mean, obviously we would do different jokes on the radio because it's a different thing. And they were like, and then you know we had the same thing after our radio show where people were like the thing is your live stuff is really high energy that won't really work on uh, screen. And you know some of your radio gags, I mean they're they're not visuals, so they won't work on screen. And we're like, we fucking know you idiots. Like it's a different medium, but the premise behind it is the same. Like we just make funny things for that me- me- medium. It's called adapting i know yeah so there was a lot of stuff like initially we wanted to keep some stuff from our live show Mm. for the radio and but actually often i find limitations are freeing and Mm. you can try and like squash something into a new box but actually the live stuff we did worked best live because it was made for live and the stuff we did for radio was made specifically with that audience in mind. 
Yeah. So hopefully the stuff that worked well worked well because of that. And if we'd ever got the chance, I think we would have done some quite good screen stuff as well. But such is life. I know. I've still got the uh, the flyer from your Brighton Fringe with the the review. If clever Peter don't get the, uh, a TV series in the next year, there is no justice. <laughs> no justice. No justice. <laughs> I mean, I think I got a review in my first year of Edinburgh saying star of the future and I'm still waiting, so, you know. <laughs> now be silent and do exactly as I say and you might just escape with your life. I have a sniper rifle pointed at your head and another on what looks like a tiny hippo. This is preposterous. It looks like you need some convincing. <laughs> Mr. Pippo! Don't let those be your last words. <laughs> and I don't agree. I think David Suchet was an excellent Poirot. <laughs> Mr. Pippo! Mr. Pippo! Now I have your undivided attention. Look in your left breast pocket. <laughs> breast. Enough! One of the live sketches that really stays with me is the, the cake fairy, which is mm. hysterical. Because um, also, that was the other thing. Like, a lot of your live sketches... Um, in like the nicest possible way were quite gross yes <laughs> sometimes yes like the cake one where you're actually literally you're stuffing cakes into Ed's mouth and it looks really horrible yeah <laughs> and menacing <laughs> yeah I think we, we enjoyed playing with a bit of grotesquerie and also the idea because all of us are quite sweaty performers we <laughs> yeah. knew we knew we'd be quite messy by the end of a one hour show so we kind of went with that and we're like okay well if this requires me to force feed ed 20 dry cakes <laughs> <laughs> and we just leave it all strewn across the floor afterwards fine <laughs> hello linda here and welcome to my diary it was a wonderful summer's day and i was at ascot with my best friends juniper tilson and praline stabowski <laughs> we'd been drinking pims and i was trifling in my mind as i'd just won money on a horse called welk i was a little skiddy from the alco pims and the three of us were having a laughacious time when i saw him <laughs> He was standing with his back behind him, and he was gazing at me with sulfated mirth, his smile flashing in the sun like a magpie's groin. So after Clever Peter, um, what kind of made you then decide to move more into solo territory with shows like, uh, well, Gun? So doing like solo stuff was interesting because basically Clever Peter kind of um, faded a little bit because people's life priorities shift. Sure. And, you know, it's, the, it's a lot of hard work if you're not being given any money by anybody to kind of pick yourself up and just go again. And I was kind of slightly falling out of love with live performance because, in a way, like, once you've done it loads, you, you have, you've, you've experienced the whole gamut. And I felt like, you know, I, I have seen it before where I've done a shit show and the audience have hated it. And I've seen it before where I've done a really good show and the audience have loved it. And they're both the same. Like, who cares? Um, so I was wondering whether I just needed to be challenged or whatever. And I didn't really want to work with other people just because of it's sometimes like herding cats, getting people into a room and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I also wanted to explore the idea of keeping that same high energy and multi-character stuff with a one-person show. Because quite often I've seen one-person shows that are just one person talking mm. and they're really like slow paced and like it's somebody being like, no, yeah. And so, and that's when I realized 
that I had to stop dating her. And then there's like four minutes of a little scene change where they move a chair and then they're like, and actually, it was, I was at the fairground. I was only 12. And I'm a bit like, oh, God. Um, surely that you can do more with a theatre than this. So I was kind of like, I wanted to put all the stuff I like in a theatre mm. show. Yes. And make it funny, but also make it have a satisfying story for me. And I also have a, have a problem with Western films in that they're really slow quite often. <laughs> oh, Even yeah. though they've got, they've got all, of the, all of the bits of story that I should love. Good versus evil, like massive themes, yeah. huge vistas and settings, and they should be amazing. And most of them I find a bit dull because there's lots of staring into space or hours of horses going across prairies or whatever. Yeah, it's a good point. They are really long, aren't they? Mm. Or maybe they're not that long, but they feel long. They do feel long, and that is part of probably their beauty for, for people who love westerns, but mm. that's what kind of bores me about them. So I wondered if I could condense that into like a 55-minute show basically all the things i like about them for people who may not have seen it can you explain a bit about what gun is yeah so it's a one-man comedy western show where this down and out wino gunslinger um his brother who, who is a kind of whiter than white sheriff gives him one last quest to go on before he dies and so this kind of down at heel gunslinger has to kind of take a MacGuffin to somewhere and he's being chased by assassins and he has fights with bandits and all this kind of stuff and he finds love along the way and um yeah it's basically kind of there's kind of 26 characters or something in it it's got a big villain and uh there's a chase on a train and a scene that turns from card game into a sex scene so doing that as one person is there were lots of like little bits like that where i wanted i wanted the idea of like a big town shootout and i wanted the idea of you know that falling in love kind of sexy frisson thing i wanted to do it as as close to those big things scenes in films as i could yeah and the challenge was could i do them on my own basically. <laughs> and Phil Croft, the director, helped a lot with that. I went down to um, a community theatre in Plymouth and there was this bit where he brought, Phil brought a friend of his along and we were doing the sex scene and, you know, these old ladies would walk in and out and, uh, you know, Phil would be like, yeah, no, but if you are going to put your finger up your bum, you probably need to um, turn slightly to your right because otherwise it's not funny. <laughs> like, you know, you'd see these, like, old people come in and go, am I, am I interrupting? And you're like, no, no, not if you, not if you don't mind. <laughs> I have to do this in front of, like, human beings for a show. I'm happy to do it to you guys. Sleep preview, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Just that, again, that just sets that sense of joy, like what, what can be challenging and what would be mm. the most fun and what would be the most exciting to do here. Um, and I had that thing that we were talking about earlier where, like, good writing versus what comes out of a mouth. Yes. Because I'd written it, I'd written some really nice bits, but when I came to do them when I knew I would be the only person on stage communicating to an audience. Yes. I was like, I don't, I don't need that long flowery passage at all. I just, because that's not the place for it. Yeah. It won't hold. I just need a quick moving on bit. Yeah. No, it's always interesting that when you kind of look at something that, like the word, you're really proud of the word play, or you're kind of like, this, you know, it looks great on paper, and then when it comes to it, it's kind of a bit waffly and doesn't land 
mm. as well as you you know it does on paper kind of thing yeah it's like it's nice but <laughs> useless in a way so that was kind of it really like i kind of made a show that i would enjoy doing for an hour every day on my own because you can't really guarantee necessarily an audience in edinburgh um yeah just enjoying enjoying the show really was great it was great and it hap- it helped that I didn't really, I didn't do it with this in mind particularly, but it just so happened that one man comedy Western is quite an intriguing sell for people. So people who would like that kind of thing would come and see that thing and would get roughly what they thought they would get. So audience wise, it was quite mm. easy. Yeah, you you delivered what what it, it promised, a one man Western. That's exactly what you delivered. It is a very fast paced um show and it's very funny because you are playing it truthfully you know it's not like a sort of wink to the camera you know this is a spoof and isn't this so ridiculous like what's so nice about it is you play it for real as if it was an actual western yeah i think there's a lot to be said for that i kind of i like that when people play funny things straight i think that's when it's funnier because actually you're you're doing justice to it and I have a slight bugbear with those kind of things of, yeah. you know, that kind of relatively cool thing of like, nah, I'm not really, I'm not really invested in it. Yeah, well, yeah, just throw that away. And if yeah. you laugh, you you can choose to laugh if you want. Whereas I I would like to be like, mm. okay, this is what it is. It's got it's a story with heart. That I'm going to give my most for. And if at the end you don't like it, that's absolutely fine because. I do, and I've done what I wanted, and it's not for you. And other people who like it, like it. Like, we used to go down pretty well generally at, at gigs. Um, I, I remember once we, <laughs> we did a... I can't remember. I think it might have been our second, second year, maybe our third Edinburgh show, I can't remember. Mm. But we, we did the first, like, few shows and sold out and had an amazing time. Like, people loved it, really laughed. And then, like, the fourth show in was full. And we started, and just nobody laughed. Oh, wow. Nobody found it in any way amusing <laughs> at, like, at all. Not even, like, little small smiles. Nothing, like, nothing. And uh, I went off into the wings that were really near the audience <laughs> to change into my next uh, scene. And I remember I've cl- I'd clocked him in the first, like, cu- scene, this kind of big bald bloke with his arms crossed in the front row looking suitably unimpressed <laughs> and I heard him as I went into the wings and he went I don't know what all the fuss is about these blokes are fucking shit <laughs> I was like oh it's gonna be a long day oh my god and then at the end there was this kind of desultory like <laughs> clapping as everybody like filed out with and a we cough were like, oh. and a cricket sound yeah it really was and we were a bit like oh huh well, I guess Go again tomorrow, then. <laughs> what was it like doing Fit, then? Was that... Um, that was a children's sketch show, wasn't it? Fit was amazing. It's probably my favourite paid job. The cast were brilliant. The director, Dominic Brigstock, is amazing. Uh, all, all of the sketches were great. It was really funny. Um, it was fun to do. Oh, fantastic. It was just great. The whole crew and the whole thing was amazing. And also, it's, it's a very, very, very funny show. You know, it's supposed to be a kid's show, but it's yeah. so much better than a lot of adult shows. Yes. I was really sad it didn't get a second series because I think it really deserved it, but it was, it was a politics shifting of people in charge type 
deal, of I think, course. you know, as often they are. Yeah. But it was great. I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of everybody who was involved in it. And it was just really fun. Were you writing as well? No, I didn't write on it, except for one one improvised gag that did make it into the into the end show. So, they, you know, out of nothing, they just <laughs> gave me a writing credit, which I, you know... Wow. Which I would expect the opposite of most shows. Yes. <laughs> but they were like, yeah, we use something of yours, so you get a writing credit. So, oh, that's oh, nice. Oh, that's nice. God, that's... It's amazing. It's amazing when you find those people. Mm. And it's interesting you say, you know, it's a children's show, but it is, you know, often funnier than, like, most of the adult shows because I, when I had um, Susan Harrison mm. on this podcast, she was talking about um, DNN, which was another thing that sounded... You know, it was really fun, a really great vibe, lovely people, lovely atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, do you, do you reckon that's kind of inherent of children's television? I think what it is, is it's really interesting because Dominic uh, Brigstock, who's obviously amazing, he's kind of, he wrote, he, he directed Alan Partridge and The Green Wing and stuff. He knows his onions. And he was saying, he said two things that really stuck out. One was... Um, it's really important to make sure that all of the crew and cast are really happy and to really just welcome them in and have like quite a family atmosphere on set because they will work harder for you. Yeah. Even though that's not, that's not the goal. Actually, the goal is to have a nice set where everybody has a nice time. But one of the products of that is that everybody works harder and is willing to do more and do their best which I thought was very interesting. And he also said, doing a kid's TV show, if you're doing an adult's TV show, you never quite know what the execs are going to pick up on as bad and that you're going to have to rearrange. Yeah. Whereas doing a kid's show, you know very clearly what they will and won't accept. So if there's a sketch where you're slightly pushing an envelope, mm. all you have to do is add the word willy into it or like too much poo or a swear word and you know that they'll pick up on that and that's what they'll cut. And then they'll be completely happy to let you do the rest of it. Fine. So <laughs> he was like, actually, for some scripts, they just added in things that they knew that would be cut so that they could do the actual thing that they really wanted to do with it. That's fascinating. And he said that it was like, it's much more creatively freeing, actually, to work on those kind of things because you know what the limitations and the lines are. And so therefore you can stretch into the bits that you, you know, want to, mm. which is really great. God, I wish there were more shows like that. There wasn't a day on set where people would be miserable. Yes. And there wasn't a sketch that didn't work. I remember I remember there was one particular sketch, which the premise is great, where it's like um, synchronised swimmers. So on top of the pool, you see the synchronised swimmers' legs. Yes. Uh, but then you go underneath the swimming pool to see what they do when they're not doing sw- synchronised swimming. And they sit at a table and they order a meal. <laughs> and somebody was, you know, they were like, oh, would, who, could, could you play the waiter? And I was like, yeah, I, can, I like swimming. I kind of like, you know, I'm happy to hold my breath and be underwater and stuff. But I hadn't realised quite what that would entail. It was basically a whole day of going down to the bottom of, of a swimming pool in a, a, a tux and um you know bringing over the menus and then taking them back and then bringing over the pizza and then taking that back and you know bringing over the thing to pay by card that's amazing and i have have never been more exhausted from a day of filming <laughs> in my life so we're now on to the final section. It's called Change of Character. Lovely. This name has been gifted to you by Eleanor Morton. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the name is Neil Peebles. All right, yeah. Who is Neil Peebles? Neil Peebles, um, he works for a call centre um, and they, they deal with... Um, if you've ever had a building um, that's not used very much, um, sometimes with bad weather, which we get in the UK quite often, um, there can be standing water in the, in the bottom of the building. So uh, Neil Peebles is in charge of organising the machines that go into the bottom of buildings, the foundations, and suck up <laughs> the water. They're water hoovers. <laughs> Water hoovers. Water hoovers, basically, yeah. And organising all the rigmarole around that of having... Because you, you got to get the tarpaulins and the drying things mm. and you got to organise the people. It's actually a very high-pressure job and important. Does he take uh, pride in this job or is it a kind of something he fell into and it's just kind of... He's stuck... Very proud, very proud, because he's very good. He's one of the top um, water vacuum organisers um, in... If, if not the world, then certainly the UK. Um, but it is something they've just fell into as a job. And the thing is, often people can say, oh, you're only working in the call centre, you're only getting £9 an hour, um, don't you have any ambition, why don't you get a proper job, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, actually it takes a lot of graft to, um, you know, sit, sit, at a, sit at a call, in a call centre for 12 hours a day. And be nice, you know, because it's not about me. It's about water and people mm. and vacuums. Does he have good um, client relation and sort of employee relationships? Uh, is he a popular guy or does he kind of keep himself to himself and is a bit of an introvert? Oh, yeah. People like him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The amount of gifts he gets at the end very rarely sees people face to face but um the amount of gifts people send him you know little chats when you know you're organizing them you know there's that standing water you know stuff and people are very upset about it and you know we'd get to chatting about hobbies and things i personally like to cook eggs just a thing you know all sorts and sometimes people sell send me an egg what because they've heard that you make such good Egg dishes. Yeah, because I've just been chatting about how I like eggs. So they're like, oh, here, Neil, thanks for all your help with the ho- water hoovers. You did a great job. You seem like a lovely, lovely man. I'd like to get to know you better. But in the meantime, here's this egg <laughs> or these eggs, if I'm lucky. Sometimes these eggs. And how does Neil like his eggs? Oh, you can't choose. It's just a, on, a, on a whim every day. You can't beat a runny boiled. That's one of the, um, you know, in my office, that's one of the little phrases I've got stuck up. What, on like, like a picture on the wall? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Humpty Dumpty on a wall. And he's saying, you can't beat a runny boiled. Does he um, expand? Does it, are there like other branches, other clients? Or is it just this one call centre? No, just the one. Just, just the, one the one it is. Um, you've got to, in my experience, you've got to pick a, pick a expertise and, and expert in it, hmm. you know. Yeah. There's no I in team, but there is an E in expert. And if you add an M to the beginning of expert <laughs> and take away the expert, then it's me. <laughs> and that's Neil Peebles. Of course. The logic there, it just it writes itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And say if he had a, a, a protege, or maybe he does, um, what, what's, uh, what does he look for? Oh, you'd have to be young enough to mould, but old enough to excel. You know, a little bit like a younger Neil. Yeah. Um, probably, you know, go-getting attitude, willingness to listen, 
you know, I, I, I think uh, I could probably work with, with anybody, really. And what does Neil do outside of work? What's his... Um, well, I guess, the, I guess the work is his passion, but what's his sort of... Uh, how's he unwind? What's his uh, downtime? Uh, mini snooker. You know, the little tiny ones. Yes. That are maybe the size of a laptop. Because big snooker's very difficult mm. and uh, quite hard work and you have to go out and you have to go to the place and you have to pay money. Whereas the little snooker ones, you know, once you've got one of them, you're set, you can just sit in front of... Game of Thrones and play snooker with yourself. Is snooker something that could potentially be more than a hobby or is that ship kind of sailed? Well, snooker players are quite old in general. So um, actually, yeah, if they introduced a, 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 a mini snooker competition, uh, Neil would back himself. Um, yeah, Neil the Power Peebles. Neil the Power Peebles. Or Neil, Neil the Predator Peebles. That one maybe has different connotations. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, no, Neil. The it would have to be something maybe something water related. The pool, no, because that's that's a pool. <laughs> Neil the pool peebles. Uh, paddle. Oh, no, paddle. Yeah, paddling pool. Paddling pool peebles. Neil the paddling pool peebles. Nice. Yeah, I like it. Could he uh, set up this mini snooker tournament? Well, we've already established he likes eggs and he does have a little nest egg set aside. Mm. So maybe that would be um, something to retire and, and create a, a mini snooker festival competition somewhere near Sheffield, not in Sheffield because they've got the crucible. That's also water-based? Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, oh, could be, certainly could be setting at one of those big leisure centres with a wave machine. So they're playing mini snooker as they are getting splashed with water? Potentially, potentially. We'd have to look into it, health and safety and all that mm. kind of stuff. At least we'd know, know where to go if, if any of the pools broke and there was standing <laughs> water anywhere. It's something to, to mull over, isn't it? I mean, it's quite amazing it hasn't been done before, <laughs> in a way. This is where Neil needs to strike while the iron's hot or the hoovers, yeah. the, the water hoovers cold. While the, yeah, while the... While the floors are soggy. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, I I I wish Neil Peebles all the luck with that. Oh yeah, thank you. That's kind. Um, send him an egg. So, um, thank you for that. That was yeah. Neil Peebles. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Can you please reveal uh, the name you're going to pass on to my next guest? The name is Twep Gruckley. Twep Gruckley. That's Twep. Twep, <laughs> Twep Gruckley. <laughs> wow. So, who is Twep Gruckley? We shall find out in the next episode of Out of Character. In the meantime, thank you so much for being my guest, Will Hartley. Thank you. Thank you.